0: The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com Good evening and namaste to all of you. Please settle down and I will continue my presentation as continuation of the series of satsangs that I'm doing in this part of the season. I'll continue presenting... A translation with uh, specific commentaries of the fundamental yogic text called Geranda Samhita. We already did a few sessions on this, we started it. Geranda Samhita is considered to be the most of the encyclopedic texts, the most orderly. Of the texts of Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, working with the physical body and the others, and Garanda Samhita, we are still in chapter number one. And Garanda Samhita describes, in chapter in its chapter number one, it describes the Kriyas. It's actually one of the very few traditional texts in all the yoga traditions. in all the yoga tradition, that goes as far into details as that. Generally, this part, which here in Agama we call Kriya Yoga, the purification exercises, as we call them in simplified jargon, they are not described much in the literature. They They are transmitted by teachers directly. They are part of the yoga folklore. But they exist also in textual form. And I guess, at least according to my knowledge until today, that Garanda Samhita is the most complete repertoire of those. As I said already once in the, one of the presentations, even Garanda Samhita does not present all, absolutely all the Kriyas which are possible. Some gurus, some lineages, some schools Either in parallel with Geranda in the 18th century, in the 17th century, or actually maybe later than Geranda, they invented a few other kriyas. So the universe of kriya yoga is even a bit richer than what is in Geranda Samhita. But Geranda Samhita gives us a 90% accurate record of what the yogis thought about purification exercises. Of course, Geranda Samhita gives then us perhaps we reach it tonight, it gives us account of the asanas, of the physical postures, of the postural practice in yoga and many other things. It's not only chapter one, what they call it lessons, the lesson number one is the one which focuses on the Kriyas, on the purification practices, but that makes it very rare in the yoga tradition. When some of the teachers of the school asked me to include in my satsangs the traditional texts like Garanda, Samhita and others, my intention is to go through all three of the basic ones in time, I thought, well, uh, it may get a little bit tedious. For example, Garanda, Samhita describes about 25 to 30 different Kriyas and for each one of them it uses one or two Strophes, versets, the yoga literature is usually written in two-liners, which are called shlokas in Sanskrit. And in European languages, we'll call them versets, like in the Bible. All we simply call them strophes, like two-line strophes. And um, the text is giving just a detail like this. And this is opening two lines of approach. Just read them and say, okay, here is where Giranda Samhita speaks about Shankaprakshalana, this is where Garanda Sambhita, and of course, how much you can say in two short lines. Can't say much, so it's more like remembering. It's like if a teacher says, let me see what is all the stuff which I know, all the Kriyas, yeah, I know this Kriya, I know this Kriya, I know this Kriya, I know this Kriya, yeah, I kind of, it's more like a memento, it's like a memorizer, it's like yogis who know use these texts to remember what they know. To kind of have it fixed on paper. The truth is that you can't learn techniques from a text like this. Because a million details are missing. Right down here. I'm going to uh, read about the Vamana Dhauti. Which in Garanda Samhita is actually used with a different name. Even the name is mistakenly attributed to Vamana Dhauti. And then anybody who has studied Vamana Dauti or Shankar Prakshalana in the first level intensive remembers that we spend there one hour and a half explaining it. Like each technique has to be explained in details with the do's, with the don'ts, with the caveats, with different other things so that people feel confident enough so that tomorrow morning or someday they can sit down and try it. They can actually perform it. That's why one of the Ways would be, let's go quickly and see what Geranda Samhita is talking about. Oh, Dauti, Danda, Dauti, Vamana, Dauti, Vastra, Dauti, this and that. And then it would be really mad because it's a lot of Sanskrit words and very brief description of techniques. We don't have the problem that we don't know what they are talking about because in Agama we do all these techniques. There are just a few techniques in Geranda Samhita that we don't do in Agama and I'm going to signal them to you and to tell you why we don't do that technique. Like I already signaled the Bahishkrita Krita Dauti, which is a very obscure technique, which would involve pulling out the intestines out of your abdominal cavity and washing them in a basin of water like a piece of cloth. Well, in my life, I haven't seen anybody doing that. There was no teacher teaching me that. And you cannot try it from the books. It sounds like a totally extreme and a killer of a technique that can handicap you at least for the rest of your life. And that's why that technique, because I never got to see it practically from anybody and thus to notice its value, is not being taught in Agama Yoga because none of us has it. None of us owns that technique so that we can pass it on to other people who are willing to try it. So in this way, we don't really have this problem because the other... The other line of action would be, let's take each one of these techniques and give you one hour and a half of explanations like for Vamana Dauti, like describe the technique from A to Z. We don't do that because then this commentary will take three years and we don't do that because most of these techniques are taught in the Agama curriculum and therefore it would be totally redundant to do it in satsangs, And that's why... uh, Please bear with me because going through the technique seems to be a little bit aimless. But the aim, at least when we look at the Kriyas right now, as I said, for those of you who are not here the previous times when we were going through this text, is it's very, very important to see how the yogis describe their techniques. And it's even more important to see what the yogis thought it was important. Like when, if I would tell you, please talk about Vamana Dauti, in about 40 words. Give me a description of Vamana Dauti with its effects. Like encourage people, say do this, 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 this is Vamana Dauti which does this and that. Give me a brief encouraging description of Vamana Dauti in 40 words. No, people would say various things because they place emphasis on various things. It's very important to see who the yogis were by, by seeing on what did they place emphasis. In the 18th century when they did yoga, what did they place emphasis? Now today, 90% of the so-called Hatha yoga which is taught in the world lays emphasis on alignments, tendons, joints and so on. I'm going to read to you the 32 classical asanas from Giranda Samhita and you are going to see that in none of them it says nothing about alignment, joints, joints tendons or anything like this they couldn't care less but they say when you do this you become like kamadeva your body becomes like the body of the god of love when you do this you become you get clairvoyance when you do this you develop the power to fly in mid-air like this was way more important for them then your knee and hip are misaligned or aligned or something. It's not that that doesn't matter because a misalignment of your knee and hip can torment you terribly in your daily life. But when they had to boil it down to a few words to speak the essential about the yoga techniques, then we can truly see the spirit of yoga. The satsangs are for me a medium to contaminate you in a positive meaning with the spirit of yoga. I want to tell you what the yogis said. I want to show you how the yogis were. So quoting from one of their very traditional and very well-known texts, it's introducing you telepathically, mentally, by resonance in your mind with the world of these extraordinary people. What kind of people they were, what were they thinking, what was important? This is what you should focus mostly into it. I just presented before the, the Kapalarandra Dauti where it was said that if you massage, you massage some parts of your forehead or skull and then it says this technique, the nadis in that area become purified and clair, clear vision or clairvoyance is produced. That's totally different than to say, oh, I have been and got a good massage. I got a good massage, but the purpose is clairvoyance. The purpose is the opening of the third eye and paranormal perceptions from the third eye. That's why the yogis were doing it. And also, <coughs> very often you will see that especially when it comes to the Kriyas, the yogis are very, very fond of Ayurveda. They constantly mention the sister, the healing sister of yoga, the Ayurvedic medicine, where they constantly mention at least the three doshas, that this is good for diminishing the mucus, this is good for diminishing the disease of Pita or of Vata. That concept is very, very dear to the yogis. Almost every yogi doing Hatha yoga would know that one or another yoga technique had effect on this or that dosha. This was kind of... ...elementary knowledge for those people. So now I'm ready to continue. I'm in chapter number one at the Shloka number 36... ...where it moves to a new category of Kriyas... ...which are called dauti. And dauti, ...I read this Shloka already but I just want to say the names... ...and then to go into the details of it. dauti means literally... Cleaning of the heart. But this has nothing to do with the heart chakra or with the heart as an organ. The, this is always the thing that when you use the name Hrid, Hridaya, in different traditions of yoga, it means a hundred things. For example, here dauti is a category of techniques which means cleaning the middle part of your body, the central part. And that's of course your core. Core in English is a word which derives from the word for heart in Latin. And therefore, one's core is one's heart. But of course, one's heart doesn't necessarily mean the heart chakra. Because if you are a person that is dominantly on Svadhisthana chakra, then when you say, I tell you from my heart. You might not be able actually to speak from your heart because you haven't got any right now. And that's why when you say, I tell you from my heart, it actually comes from your Svadhisthana. It means I tell you from the center of my being, wherever that center may be. It's like in the ridiculous provocative comedy, The Golden Child, where Eddie Murphy has a conscious dream and he speaks with a guy who is a sort of a demon or a devil and he tells him, oh, I know I'm dreaming, so because this is a dream, I think I can get away with pretty much anything because it's a conscious dream and I can do pretty much what I want, so I'm going to tell you something and I think I'm going to tell it to you from my heart. Kiss my ass. He tells to the devil, kiss my ass, and he says, I'm telling it to you from my heart. That's not from the heart of Francis of Assisi and Rumi. Rumi and Francis of Assisi speaking from the heart. They wouldn't have used that language. But for Eddie Murphy it goes. Because that's where his heart is. It's appropriate. His heart is not in the heart chakra. His heart is somewhere in the low chakras. And when he says I tell you from my heart. Kiss my ass. That's he It expresses him. It expresses his kind of personality and his kind of being. And that's why uh, here also when it says dauti the purification of the core, it basically means the central part of your being. As you look at a yogi sitting, the central part of the being seems to be this central part, right? Lower than the throat, higher than the belly. about the, And because it's around the heart, it's appropriate to call it hrid But don't think that this addresses to the heart. There are yogic commentators who say, well, if you clean the stomach or the lungs, you clean the heart. Because it's impossible that your heart should have a lot of kapha, mucus on it, resulting in cholesterol deposits and other things. And your stomach and lungs should be perfectly pure, just five centimeters away from the heart because the organs of the body have a communication between them of fluids. There is a fluid balance, which is usually carried on by the lymph system. The lymph system and the physiologic serum in the body, they simply transport everything from here to there. So if you purify the stomach, you actually heal the heart. So in a very indirect way, we can say that everything which you clean in this area is indirectly going to be good for the heart. Then somebody will say, What about the lungs? I have no problems with the heart. I have problems with the lungs. That's why it's not only about the heart, it's about everything which is central in the human being. And the shloka number 36 is simply encyclopedic descriptive, saying, dauti, this middle dauti, is of three kinds danda dauti with a stick, vamana dauti by vomiting, and vastra dauti by a piece of cloth, which is called vasa. So that's why it's vastra dauti. And then without any further ado, it proceeds describing them. Giranda is not at all roundabout in any way. He's very, very engineering, like very systematic, like. And so he goes and says Danda Dauti, the first of them, which is in Tushlokas 37 and 38. He says, take a stalk of plantain, turmeric or cane and insert it gently into the gullet, into your esophagus, move it to and fro and slowly draw it out. Basically, that's the trick or the movement which is done in the circus by the sword soloers. There are some people who notice that by putting their mouth and throat in a certain position, you create just one straight channel from the bottom of the stomach down to here. And you can even insert a sword or something. And uh, it is uh, finding a straight line. That's why it's not cutting you or piercing you or doing any. (laughs) Accident. Well, the yogis did not do sword soloing in circus. They simply did the same thing because to insert something in your throat, it would have to be at least semi-rigid. Today, when we have so many rubbers and plastics and synthetic materials, maybe people would invent a technique like this. But in those days, materials were limited to what mother nature had to offer. And in the nature, you either found things which were too floppy, or you found things which were too rigid. So they went in this technique for the rigid ones, so they took sticks which would not bend, and then automatically you had to put yourself in a certain position, so that rather inflexible stick would go in. Of course, they had to think about so many things. I wonder, this single one technique, how many years of experiment did it take, and if there was some trial and error in some schools. What, for example, if you take a stick, and that stick has the consistence of a banana fruit, it's like a soft thing because you don't want to hurt yourself. And then when you put it in your stomach, it reacts with your gastric juices because you happen to have a bit of hyperacidity in your stomach. And then a part of it breaks and stays in the stomach. And then you don't know how to get it out anymore. And maybe it's not healthy or it doesn't really fit in your digestive system or something. Here they say, use a stick of plantain, turmeric or cane. Of course, it will not speak about oak tree or something because maybe they don't have it so much in India. So it's all tropical plants from India. But how much effort has been taken to find out which sticks are good and which sticks are not good? Which sticks are too tough? Which sticks will not get soft? Which sticks are not absorbing fluids? Which sticks are not getting too soft? Which sticks are not poisonous, which sticks are not going to commit to contain substances that will make you vomit or get an infection or some poisoning of some sort. Like how much effort it took before the yogis say turmeric would work, plantain tree would work, cane, sugar cane, the cane would work, others will not work. And of course, a lot of details are not being said. Even today, if you read Swami Shivananda's book, or he describes some of the Kriyas, he talks about this one, and then he advises that you should take a stick and wrap it in a piece of cloth, and use it like a stick wrapped in cloth, putting it inside to make sure you don't hurt yourself, because maybe you don't find the right essence of tree, maybe you don't find the right density of that wood, or the right quality of it. And uh, therefore, this Kriya is about taking a stick, of the right length and of the right thickness and consistence. Of course, making sure that it has no scratchy points anywhere, like making it perfectly rounded and soft and smooth, putting it into the stomach, either with uh, surrounded by cloth or not, and moving it to and fro like you'd clean a bottle, like you'd clean the neck of a bottle, and then slowly drawing it out. You're going to say, further, you are going to speak, and we know from Agama courses, you're going to speak about Vamana Dauti, where you do pretty much the same thing, apparently, by drinking water, shaking the stomach vigorously, and then throwing up that water mixed with whatever mucuses or fluids it found in the stomach. Why isn't that good enough? Some yogis probably considered that in the human being there are sometimes forms of kapha, of mucus, which are extremely dense. And if you just drink water and shake it and throw it up, you'll take only 50% of it off the walls of the esophagus and stomach. And some of it will still stick to the walls of esophagus and stomach. And then they resorted to a more mechanical method. Like you can clean your stomach like a chimney cleaner cleans the chimney in a house. You just stick a broom down the chimney and you move it to and fro until all the coal and all the ashes are removed from there. Says Geranda Samhita in 38, by this process, the phlegm, kapha, so when they say phlegm, it means kapha from Ayurveda, the bile or pitta and other impurities are expelled out of the mouth. They mean expelled via the mouth because the stick is supposed to be semi-absorbent, porous a little bit like the cane is sugar, surely, and the turmeric i don't know about plantate and they kind of get impregnated with this mucus and when you pull it out you pull it sticky and full of phlegm and then you next time you use another one or you wash that one very well and it says by this kapha and pita are expelled so it's a purifier of first kapha and then pita and then it says by this dandadhauti diseases of the core are surely cured but when they mean core, they can mean heart, and they can also mean chest or center of the being. And here, Garanda uses an imperative language, like as Jesus, when he says, truly, truly, I tell you that this and this and that, like he emphasizes. Here, Garanda says, by this process, by this Danda Dauti, diseases of the hrid of the core are surely cured. So he insists, he puts a strong word there, he says you should have no doubt. Truth is that many people in yoga find this method a little bit barbarous and extreme, and this method is described in the curriculum of Agama, although not many people practice it. It's difficult to go around for turmeric and plantain trees or canes or others, When you find it, you are not sure you found the... So we should have an Ayurvedic shop around here selling cane and plantain and turmeric sticks. And then many people are still thinking it's a little bit of a circus-like technique. It seems it supersedes what we know here in Agama as Vamana Dauti through the fact that it mechanically rubs the wall of the esophagus and partly of the stomach. And it might catch some very dense mucosities, which don't get 100% dissolved or carried on by water. And then the text continues with the Vamana Dauti. And I want to call your attention from the very beginning that here is a typical, one of the typical situations of Indian classifications because what Geranda calls here Vamana Dauti is not what we in Agama call Vamana Dauti. The name is used in a different way. Well, you can say, why didn't you choose to call your thing according to Garanda Samhita? And why do you use another name? Because generally in the world of yoga, the majority of yogis don't use the word Vamana Dauti, the technology, the name Vamana Dauti, as in Garanda Samhita. Everybody in yoga knows that this technique which Garanda describes here is called by the yogis by another name. It's not that the technique does not exist. The technique described here exists, but it is actually not called Vamana Dauti. And that's why what I read, just be aware of the fact that this is how so many confusions appear in yoga, because the yogis were not very good with systematization of the names. Even a pretty orderly fellow like Geranda, he does it to the best of his ability, but then uh, different traditions have mixed things up. I, for one, would have nothing against keeping this technique with the name Vamana Dauti and giving to what we call here Vamana Dauti the name Alfalfa Dauti or whatever other name you want to give to it. I'm fine with it, but the problem is that in the yoga tradition there exists a certain amount of chaos when it comes to names because yoga was a big subcontinent. And yogis from the eastern India with yogis from the western India very seldom communicated directly. And thus traditions got entangled and complicated. So let's see what Geranda then calls Vamana Dauti. 39. After a certain duration of time after meals, let the wise practitioner drink water full up till the throat, gaze upward for a short while, and then vomit it all out. By daily practice of this, one of this, one can cure diseases of phlegm or kapha and bile or pitta. This technique is stirring the hell out of everybody. If we'd be teaching it in the first month, we'd get a very bad reputation here in Agama. Somebody was telling me today that they got to talk with one of the disciples, with one of the pupils, just because of the regular Vamana Dauti that we teach. Because a person who was very traumatized was having uh, issues that this was sounding very much like bulimia or anorexia or any some other food disorder. And they were afraid that just by listening to it or just by giving it a try, they might fall into it uh, automatically. They might be sucked into that hell uh, automatically. Vamana Dauti, as it is taught in Agama and in the main trend of yoga is not encouraging any bulimia or anorexia or any food disorder, uh, anything like this, because it is something which is done early in the morning on an absolutely empty stomach after eight hours of sleep. And if you are in a minimal state of health, after eight hours or seven hours of sleep, you will not have one milligram of food left in your stomach. And that's why the Vamana Dauti is about cleaning an empty stomach, You can say, why clean it if it's empty? Because although it's empty of food, it will have some residues from the doshas, from the humors of the body. And those humors have to be regulated by this exercise. So, of course, uh, doing Vamana Dauti in the real yogic way And we always tell to people, please think, you know. It's like stop uh, reacting like a lemming, like a spinalized frog, you know. Stop reacting automatically without thinking. This is not about vomiting food. It's about water on an empty stomach in the morning. And And some people calm down. They are like, okay, I don't know if I still am going to try. But now this one which comes here, this is blowing the bulb of such people. Because this one says clearly after a certain duration of time after meals let the wise practitioner drink water full up till the throat like fill yourself up to the brim gaze upward for a short while it doesn't explain why like you would put put your head back and do some trataka upwards which is a typical exercise in many yoga kriyas but here the technology says what will you get through it will you consecrate it to god Will you concentrate? Will you pray before you do it? Will you focus on Ajna Chakra or on Sahasrara before you do it? What's the purpose? It's not explained, so it's somewhere there between the lines. And then it says, vomit it all out. It is obvious that if you do this early enough, there will be at least some part of the food left. And that's why this technique can mean that one will vomit food and this opens Pandora's box because then the question is when and why would you do that. Great yogis later, not Geranda, Geranda doesn't say more, he leaves it ambiguous and if you just read and try to improvise, you may hurt yourself badly because people who do this thing, eating and vomiting, they damage their metabolism pretty seriously in time. Great yogis have clarified this. This technique in the Bihar school of yoga by Direndra Brahmachari and other great yogis is not called Vamana Dauti. They called it bhakti, which means the tiger. And they call it bhakti because uh, it was a notice of the yogis living in the jungle that sometimes when the tigers hunt, they eat freshly killed animals full of blood. and full of So the, f- the meal is extremely heavy. It's freshly full of blood meat and blood, there they eat, and sometimes in the frenzy of the hunt they are also greedy and they eat a lot because their adrenaline is rushing, they have an adrenaline rush, and and they overeat, and then two hours later they regret it and they feel very heavy and very bad. It would have better for them if they ate only two-thirds of what they ate, and then go later and eat a little bit more. But in the jungle, you never know. After you eat and you go, some jackal will come or some vulture will come and eat the carcass which you hunted. And then you, if you go after 12 hours, you don't find anything. So natu- naturally, animals like tigers, they will be sometimes greedy. And then yogis have noticed a very interesting effect that sometimes tigers vomit spontaneously, like it's too much for them. And a few hours after they have eaten, They digest, and they digest, they digest, and when it gets too much, they simply vomit, they throw up. And the yogis looked at the nature, they are great students of the nature, and they said, look at the tigers. That's why the tigers are so strong, it's the strongest animal in the yogic habitat. Maybe the lion of Africa is a bit stronger than the male tiger, but there were not many male lions in India to see in the jungle. In the jungles where the yogis lived in India, the king of the jungle was the tiger. And they said, look at the tiger. The tiger throws up, and in this way, although it eats meat, which is heavy and toxic, and we, the yogis, don't eat it because we think vegetarianism is better, the tiger still copes with it And because he throws up the toxins in the end. When it gets toxic... In the end of the digestive process, he prefers to throw it up and then his body stays supple, supple, strong and so on. And the yogis tried it and with the process of trial and error, they found out how it works. As scandalous as it is for you who just a week ago heard about Vamana Dauti and you got afraid of it and we told you it's not and now because this comes in a satsang, not in the curriculum of Agama, in the 10th level of Agama when you already know your yoga well, but because you hear some of you as total beginners now uh, on it uh, about this, then this is going to scare you terribly because you're going to say, aha, okay, so it was not Vamana Dauti, but still we knew it. Well, there is something in yoga which comes to that edge and could encourage people to do that. Well, the yogis thought that they discovered the scientific way of doing that. And what is taught in the Agama curriculum about bhakti, about the tiger practice, the tiger technique, the tiger kriya, as it is called, is the fact that you should leave, if you are a person with a relatively good digestion, minimum three hours, and if you are a person with a slow digestion, go towards four hours. The appropriate time for doing bhakti is three to four hours after eating. Like people who suffer from bulimia and they binge on food and then they throw it up, they throw it up 30 minutes later because they feel bloated, and they feel they have eaten too much, and they are paranoid, they are going to put on weight and get fatty. And therefore they, and that is a sure way of screwing the metabolism. But the yogis say, if you leave the food in the stomach three hours and a half, in three hours and a half, the body should have finalized. It takes one maximum two hours, for the digestion to go through the kapha stage of digestion. Then it takes another hour for the digestion to go through the pitta stage of digestion. And then in the end, there is a short vata stage of the digestion. In three hours and a half, your digestion should have gone through all of it, and there shouldn't be food in the stomach. If there is any food left in your stomach more than three hours and a half after, that food has stayed at 37 degrees Celsius, that means hot, in a hundred percent humidity level full of bacteria and because of this that food got rotten and stale just because it stayed in your stomach it should have gone in your bowels where there is no oxygen and where the digestion is tight and it follows the enzymes and the chemicals of the digestion as long as it's in the stomach it's not airtight and because of this the digestion is corruptible in the stomach still and therefore The yogis have simply said, whatever food stays in your stomach more than four hours, you may consider that you want to throw it up, because after four hours, it starts turning into poison. So you don't throw it up because throwing up is disgusting and ugly and unpleasant, and it reminds you of your teenager years when you were bulimic or something. And meanwhile, you sit like a sitting duck, and because you ate too much and your digestive fire is too weak, you are allowing poisons to go in your system when it would be take just 5 to 10 minutes to take them out of your system and to stop the nightmare. And maybe that teaches you a lesson that next time you should eat just 75% of what you ate this time, knowing that after 3 hours and a half or 4 hours, there still was food in your stomach and all the rest. So the technique exists. It's very, very justified empirically. Like the yogis think that they discovered a great trick about it. Great yogis have recommended it. Uh, it is dangerously close to bulimic, anorexic uh, food disorders like this. And that's why we never push people that have traumatic things about that to go there. And it is not Vamana Dauti as Giranda calls it. This is in the most, of, for most of the yogis, is called Bhakti Kriya, the tiger Kriya, and Vamana Dauti is something else. And then you are going to say, what about Vamana Dauti? Well, tough luck, it's not described in Geranda Samhita. When Geranda described something which he called Vamana Dauti, he actually described Bhakti Kriya, and Vamana. That's why I say, here is one Dauti which we do in Agama. We teach even in the first level, and still it's not in Geranda Samhita. Why? Because not even Geranda Samhita hit 100%, he hit 90% accuracy and that's pretty good for an author in the Indian environment in the 18th century. Finally, the third of the middle Dautis, it still refers to the stomach and it is called Vastra Dauti, it was with a piece of cloth and 40 and 41 tell us exactly how that goes. Swallow slowly a thin cloth four fingers wide and 19 to 25 cubits in length and then gently draw it out again. This is called Vastra Dauti. Basically, you have to take a roll of gauze, a ro- long roll of gauze, usually medical gauze fits pretty well with this. Like a long, long stripe of cloth or to cut of a piece of cloth, but not very dense. It has to be absorbent. It was, has to be a, a rare piece of cloth, not very high-density cloth, and you have to swallow it. Experience shows that swallowing a piece of cloth which is totally dry requires inordinate amounts of saliva because it won't slide down the gullet, especially in the beginning where there is nothing inside to pull it, like its own weight, to kind of pull it deeper and deeper. Once you've got a meter of it down in the stomach, the rest kind of goes automatically because that meter kind of pulls it. So that's why what the yogis do is that they soak it into water and they shrink it. They kind of squeeze the water out so that the piece of cloth is at least wet. So here, Geranda doesn't Hey, say that it's a piece of wet cloth about this broad, about 10 centimeters, 8 to 10 centimeters broad and very long. And you insert it like a snake in your mouth. And the first part is the most difficult until the first part starts going down the esophagus and towards the stomach. And then you keep swallowing on top of it and on top of it and on top of it. How much? Quite a bit. Like there are a few meters of it, four to six meters of it. Uh, according to the traditional unit, 19 to 25 cubits in length. And gently draw it out again. This is called Vastra Dauti. Even this technique, this technique is somewhere between Vamana Dauti, like wash your stomach with fluid, with just water, and between the Danda Dauti where it says rub the walls of your stomach with a stick or with some sort of chimney-like cleaning device. This is in between because you are putting inside a piece of cloth. The piece of cloth will be more dense. It will interact with the walls of the stomach and this a bit more dense. So the purpose is again the same. There is the worry that some of the mucosities in your esophagus and stomach may be so dense that one Vamana Dauti will not clean more than 50% of it. And then you need something more mechanical to go in the stomach. This practice, which is more intense... Uh, many people expressed, like I never thought about it until somebody expressed their paranoia and then it was a mental impurity which stayed with me unfortunately because somebody said I was doing this technique every day and every time when I was doing it, I was thinking what's going to happen if it gets entangled in my stomach, if my stomach moves and entangles it because if you swallow it, it will go in the stomach and it will be like this. It will just come on top of, on top of, on top of, on top But what if it churns in the stomach and then when you pull it, it makes a knot in the stomach like wires can do. And you try to pull it out the esophagus, it won't come out anymore. I have never heard about this happening, but theoretically it is, of course, possible. So that's why some of these kriyas are a bit crazy when you take it from the standpoint of medical science and uh, pure. Like many people say, is it worth it taking that risk? Maybe if you put less than six meters inside you and so on. It's up to you to make up your mind if and when you want to do such techniques. The technique is given, it exists in the lore of the yogis, it's very useful and in the shloka number 41, Garanda tells us even why it is useful. He says this practice cures gulma, which is an Ayurvedic name which generally refers to abdominal tumors. Now abdominal tumors can mean a lot of things. If a woman is having a 10 centimetre ovarian cyst, Strictly speaking, an ovarian cyst is an abdominal tumor because it's a tumor, big, round, growing in your abdomen. Does the Vastra Dauti cure even ovarian cysts? We don't know. Scientific research has not been done on such things because the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry don't have the interest to, to teach Vamana Dauti and Vastra Dauti. Because you can't make money on selling a piece of cloth to people and that's why there are lots of tests about medication what medications and chemicals do but these things in some yoga hospitals from India like in Lonavla near Bombay and others they did make but those are is minor scientific research is not main trend scientific research and because of this it's sometimes overlooked like the Medical industry can easily brush it behind the curtain and say, yeah, but that was not done by a university with double blind precautions and with this and with that, and thus they invalidate it anyway. Otherwise, if you want to read about research in healing through yoga, there is quite a bit of it, but it is more enthusiastically done than professionally according to university rules. So this practice cures abdominal tumors, well then you draw two conclusions from it. Maybe if you have abdominal tumors and the doctor says it's inoperable, maybe you should swallow six meters of cloth now and then and pull it out because it's what can save the day, even if the doctor says that they can operate you. The doctors never tell you how you are going to feel one year after the operation. They never tell you you are going to have pain for the next five years. Every time when it rains and it gets low barometric pressure, this is going to happen. You are going to have acid in your stomach, Uh, heartburns all the time because of this. You are going to have this and that. That is never mentioned on the bill when they propose you to do, No, people are getting surgery for cancer, and then they say, if I knew how it's going to be, I would have committed suicide before the surgery. Like... You are not being told everything. So sometimes you have an abdominal tumor. You have to consider, Geranda says, Vastra Dauti. The second observation is if Vastra Dauti cures it, you have to think that Vamana Dauti, the regular Vamana Dauti, which we teach here, also cures it about 50%. Because Vamana Dauti does what Vastra Dauti does, only with water, so in a bit of a more delicate way. Two Vamana Dautis might give the same result as one Vastra Dauti. And therefore, if, Vastra, if you like what Vastra Dauti says, then you might get more enthusiastic about Vamana Dauti. So it says it cures abdominal tumors, fever. Now, what kind of fever and where it's coming from, that's very debatable. The yogis are very simple-minded when it comes to medical science because there are forms of fever which can come from a tumor in the brain or from some uh, concussion in your brain, or from, why not, dengue fever, from the infection with a virus. And then the question is, if you are doing Vastra Dauti, will it stop dengue fever? What if we have the surprise to notice that it reduces the time and the intensity of it with 30%? Then many people who had severe forms of dengue will say, "I, I would have done that if I knew ...that it would have helped me to go through the dengue better. So there are a lot. there is a lot of food for the thoughts when you hear these things. And the list is long for Vastra Dauti. This practice cures abdominal tumors, fever, enlarged spleen, leprosy. Leprosy was the curse of India until the 20th century. And other skin diseases. Many of you complain about rashes and so on. Remember, emptying the stomach may heal a lot of other things on the skin and generally disorders of the kapha and Pita, And day by day, the practitioner gets health, strength, and well-being. I don't know many people in the school who do Vastra Dauti, but I know many people who have done years and years of Vamana Dauti, and they witnessed exactly this, that as long as they did it, they had lots of health, lots of well-being, lots of strength in the body. And that's why this is obliquely pointing back to the classical Vamana Dauti, not to the Vamana Dauti, which uh, Garanda describes, which again is not bad, but it's something entirely different. This being said, he swiftly moves to the next topic, which is mulashodana, it's one of a kind, it's just one Dauti, the last of the big Dautis, is just one, every one of them was four types, three types, f- five types, Mula Shodana is just one of the four dautis and it's just a single technique. This is taught in Agama and it produces a lot of amusement. And uh, therefore, I will let you the chance to enjoy that lecture when it comes because, again, I don't intend to describe each and every technique, I cannot go into the details. Mula Shodana. The apana vayu does not work properly as long as the rectum is not cleansed. Therefore, with care and diligence, one must purify the area of the root. Basically, here people would say, come on, you know, apana vayu would mean one Defecation, elimination of feces. And if you are not clean, it will not work. Like what? If you are constipated, it doesn't work because you have a lot of fecal matter which plugs your digestive lower channel. That's pretty gross and extreme, and how many people really would have that problem that they have a cork of old feces up their rectum, and that would have to be emptied or something, and then shouldn't you amplify the digestive peristalsis? Shouldn't you do with yanabanda, Nauli? Shouldn't you take some purging uh, herbs or some other Ayurvedic formulas? What is he talking about here? It is uh, well understood in the world of yoga, that here Garanda and other yogis like him who speak about this mulashodana they tend to imply something subtle. In the area of the anus, the human being is having some very important nadis which make a very, very delicate and precise balance between the telluric energy which comes from the legs and the cosmic energy which comes through the head and through the arms in case we lift our arms up like in Tadasana. And thus... Uh, in the area of the anus, a lot of things are being decided. And that's why they speak about a purification of the area of the anus to kind of help the purification of the energy of the body in an indirect way. As I told to people, now you are modern people coming from a modern civilized world where the standards of hygiene are 100 times better than in the previous uh, centuries. Uh, remember that at least in the West and in some parts of the world, the standards of cleaning, which people practiced after going to the toilet, they were appalling, they were indescribable. You probably would shake your head in disbelief and think I'm exaggerating if I would tell you how people really, it's historically known, it's archaeologically historically known. And that's why China, India, India, Perhaps Southeast Asia, they were very privileged areas because in this, due to the Chinese medicine, due to the Ayurveda, due to yoga, due to a certain sophistication of the Chinese culture and others, people were practicing things like we have the toilet guns and other things. People were practicing things which in the West would have been considered sophisticated beyond measure. When the British were doing the East India Company and trafficking opium and they started interacting with them, they were completely flabbergasted to discover that the Chinese had something which today we call toilet paper. Like toilet paper was a completely unknown concept. And try to imagine being a sailor on a ship for a year and there's no toilet paper on the ship. How is the personal hygiene looking? You don't even want to think too much about the details of it. And that's why in the moment when the yogis come with stuff like this, this is all very sophisticated. It made a difference in those days. There are many, many other things which I cannot say because then I would simply reproduce the Mulashodana lecture. But Geranda continues in 43 by describing the technique. He first described why, what's the issue. Then he says, by a stalk of turmeric root, again turmeric, or by the middle finger, one must carefully clean the the anus and rectum with water again and again. So the Sanskrit word is like insistingly again and again. So it means until full cleanliness is obtained. The finger is good enough if you don't live in an area where turmeric is growing and you can crop it on a regular basis for your personal hygiene. And when it comes to effects, again, the effects are a little bit out of proportion. It says this destroys constipation, indigestion, and dyspepsia. I have people who are telling me, Swami, I'm not digesting well. Well, start with Mula Shodhana, right? Mula Shodhana says it destroys constipation, indigestion, and dyspepsia. It increases the beauty, radiance, and vigor of the body. How many people don't want to have more beauty, more radiance, and more vigor, like more vitality in the body? And stimulates a lot the digestive fire. Here is a collateral effect, which is like as soon as I speak, it destroys the indigestion. It means there is more digestive fire. And then it says it clearly in the end. Although you are washing the area of your anus, which clearly in yoga is related to muladhara chakra... Nevertheless, it does something to your Manipura as well. There is a reflex and this reflex has produced many uh, confusions, many dialogues, many debates in the world of yoga. If somehow the anus is not related to Manipura as well, because many texts which mention cleaning of the anus or stimulation of the anus, then they are saying that some of the effect will be in Manipura chakra. In this case, it stimulates a lot. It doesn't say it stimulates the digestive fire. It says it stimulates a lot the digestive fire. And that is, wait a second, the fire is not in the area of the anus, which obliges us to admit that it is therefore a reflex reaction. There is a connection, a psychosomatic connection, which makes that when you stimulate the anus, something is going to happen in the area of Manipura as well. This was the description of mulashodana and thus, it is going to the next category of Kriyas. We are at the shloka number 45. And the next category of Kriyas is called Basti. And out of the Basti, shloka 45 simply says, Basti is of two kinds, Jala Basti with water, and Sukshma Basti, which means subtle Basti, or actually it can also be translated as dry. Therefore, Basti without water, because the first one is with water. Water Basti is always done in water and dry Basti on land. When you are going to read different yoga teachers from modern times, you are going to see that with the help of Ayurvedic doctors, they have conceived oil enemas, herbal enemas, Basti with milk and other things, like the list of bhastis has increased from the time of Gyaranda, But at the time of Giranda, Basti Kriya was simply with water or dry. Jala Basti, that's the water Basti. Jala is water in Sanskrit. Enter in water up to the navel in the final posture because you are squatting. So not when you are standing. When you are squatting, the water should come up to your navel. Performing the position called Utkatasana. Some people call it Kagasana, but when you lift a little bit, it's rather Utkatasana contract and expand the anal sphincter repeatedly. This is called jalabasti. Here the technique is uh, described in a ridiculous way because in this technique you don't contract and expand. It makes you understand that you sit in water and then you do something with your anus and you suck water inside your anus, inside your rectum, which if you try to do it with the anus, you'll never actually do it. It's something which here in Agama is taught somewhere in the 10th level, if I remember correctly, and people learn the correct technology and they can do it, but it is done with the help of Nauli Kriya and some other advanced things. It doesn't work through the power of the einus. The As you can see, didn't Geranda know this? Like, does he write about Basti without having done it or taught it? Obviously, he knows perfectly how to do it. He is a great teacher, he's a famous teacher, then why doesn't he write it simply because he doesn't want people to learn Jalabhasti from his papers he wants people to learn Jalabhasti from him because there are 101 details that he needs to add and if you will add them he will write a compendium not a small treatise on hatha yoga and he didn't have the time or the intent to write a big compendium and therefore he writes it briefly and in some places even uh, inexactly says contract and expand the anal sphincter repeatedly. This, this won't produce any effect of basti. This is like the akunkana and prakashana, the contraction and expansion in ashvini mudra, and this does not absorb liquids in the body. And then to give us the detail, it quickly described the practice. Of course, you have to learn it from your teacher. And then in 47, he says, this cures urinary disorders, urinary disorders because it works in the lower abdominal area, it works in the perineum area. So for men it will affect the prostate, both for men and for women it will affect their urinary bladder and urinary channels indirectly. So this cures urinary disorders, Digestive disorders which are called udavarta in Sanskrit and some authors translate it as constipation, some authors translate it even as diabetes, some authors describe it as nettle rashes. So translations from Sanskrit are pretty wild on this one because apparently the word udavarta, which Geranda uses is not a very main trend Sanskrit word, it might be a regional word, a countryside word a vernacular word, uh, a trumped up word, which didn't make it to the big dictionaries of Sanskrit. And that's why even translators are wondering, oh, Avarta? I think he meant this because it sounds like this or it sends us there or something. So anyway, it cures urinary disorders, digestive disorders or this nettle rash and disorders of the wind, krura vayu, called here, the wind vata dosha in Ayurveda. That's very rare and useful because the wind is the most disturbable of the three doshas of the body. And when people have many troubles, they have troubles with wind. The body becomes free from disease. That's a huge statement, of course. You always have to take it with a pinch of salt. And as beautiful as that of Kamadeva. This statement appears in many techniques, from, uh, especially Kriyas. That one of the things was that you get divine vision, clairvoyance. You see what the gods can see. One of the goals, which is often listed. And another goal, which is often listed, is that you get a body like the body of Kamadeva. Kamadeva in India is what Eros or Cupid is in the West. It means the god of love, the god of carnal love, the god of Eros. And the god of love in the West because of the shyness of the Christian tradition, is considered to be a big, a little fatty, plump angel, looking like a kid and shooting whatever. In India, the God of love is considered to be extremely, extremely handsome, extremely beautiful, because nobody is as attractive as the god of love. So to be attractive, to look like the god of love means to have a field of energy around you which is extremely pleasant. It changes, it makes the energy around the person clean, pleasant. It is a well-known thing because these texts are mostly written from the standpoint of men, because a man wrote it and many men practi- many people practicing these were men, unlike in modern times where so many women practice Hatha Yoga. And then for many men this resulted as a benefit because women react a lot to the smell. Not mentioning the fact that many men don't, don't wash themselves and they simply stink and women then the choice is relatively easy because they are stinkers and non-stinkers and you know where you go. But even the people who wash themselves, the body smell is slightly different. And there are so many women who say they can remember smells of their lovers from 15 years ago. And they can recognize somebody by the smell. And if you gave a hug to another person, they can smell you on the other person. And it's like which men never understand. Because experiments in physiology show that women are approximately 100 times more more sensitive to smell than men. Way, way more than men can imagine, more sensitive to smell than men. And that's why, um, of course, this simply says it was demonstrated that women choose their sexual partners very much according to smell. If a woman gives a hug to a man and she doesn't like the way he smells, she doesn't want to have sex with him. And sometimes some men have Pheromones, testosterone and so much in their skin that women just by giving them a hug and they feel horny and they feel this guy I would like to try him because he smells really manly. And therefore uh, women feel this and therefore much of the sexual attraction is due to the smell and a kriya, a profound kriya like a basti which eliminates a lot of stale matter and a lot of blockages. Automatically, in one month, three months of practice, it will produce a general purification, which will give a pleasant smell, just like uh, Shankaprakshalana and others do. Uh, Remember, the modern research has demonstrated that women can even smell disease on men. And, for example, if a man is suffering from a chronic, debilitating disease, Women don't want to have sex with that man because the instinct of the nature is if this guy ejaculates in me and gets me pregnant, I'm going to have a sick child or a child with very bad DNA because this man is not healthy right now. And therefore, the women instinctively defend themselves and the smell is one of their main filters. That's why a possible explanation, because you can say you do busty, you do busty, let's say you do busty every week. How much more beautiful is your body going to become? Exception made of the fact that maybe if you are too skinny, you put on some weight. And if you are too fat, you lose on some weight and so on. But there are people who even when they don't put on too much weight or they don't lose too much weight, they are not really the most handsome and beautiful people in the world. It's a sad truth, but it's true. And therefore, how will you look like Kamadeva when even if your body is in good health, relatively speaking, that's not about it. It seems here there is a subtle implication. The yogis always go with these subtle implications. Some of them can we, we can maybe explain scientifically. Like maybe the yogis speak about a cleanliness which radiates from the body. And therefore the hormones are fresh and the body smells are strong and healthy. And that makes you sexually more attractive. So a yogi who did this said, oh, since I started doing Basti, The girls like me five times more than before, you know, and then they said it makes you as beautiful as Kamadeva, not because it makes you beautiful, but because somehow on a a strange way, it increases your desirability. It makes you more desirable. Of course, we should not ignore, however, the original text, which says that the body through Basti, through water Basti, becomes free from diseases and as beautiful as that of Kamadeva. Stala Bhasti is the dry basti. we are getting close to the end of this list. Stala Bhasti says adopt the posture called Pashimotana, which is our Pashimotanasana, and then move the bowel slowly downwards and contract and expand the anus by Ashvini Mudra. This practice eliminates constipation, increases the gastric fire Jatar Agni, heals indigestion and cures flatulence. We have here again one of these mixed exercises in which you move the bowels somehow. You exert the pressure, whatever you do. But you contract and expand the anus by ashvini Mudra, which seems to be a typically Muladhara thing. And then half of the effects are on Manipura. It increases the gastric fire. It heals indigestion, cures flatulence. Okay, that is elimination of Vata dosha. So here... In this basti Kriyas, we often see, and as we saw in Mula Shodana that the yogis often have this, cross this borderline, that some things which you do on your Muladhara chakra, they will have some indirect beneficial effects on Manipura as well, and on the digestive fire elements. Stala basti is done in a bit more complicated way. You just have to absorb water, I'm sorry, not water, air, in the anus. Some people have discovered that accidentally and they consider it a very embarrassing thing that sometimes you just get some water, some air coming in the anus and producing a sort of a fake farting effect afterwards and so on. It, uh, it sounds a bit gross but uh, for the purpose of yoga healing there are lots of explanations there. Then Geranda goes to the fourth category uh, to the, I'm sorry to the third major category the second was Basti, the first was Dauti the last ones are much shorter because they are not four and four of those and four of those four and so on so it's more short goes faster the next one described the third category is called under the name Neti and the description in Garanda Samhita goes like this take a thin thread measuring half a cubit which is like 28 centimeters, about 25 centimeters. A cubit goes around half of a meter. So measuring half of a cubit and insert it into each nostril until you can pull it out by the mouth. This is called neti karman. Here in Agama when we teach neti, we teach another form of neti, which is jala, neti, neti with water. There exist about several forms of neti, neti with urine, neti with milk, neti with different things netty with herbal stuff. The original one described in Garanda is with a thread, with a thin thread. They use a special soft thread, a uh, silky thread. They put in the nose. If you push it big, big enough, it starts hanging behind the uvula, and you can stick your fingers deep inside your throat and catch it. And then you've got both sides of that thread, and you can make like this with it, and exactly like you do with a stick in your esophagus, you do like this through the nostrils and then you take it out and put it in the other nostril and clean it also. This gesture which looks a little bit like shoe shining of your nostrils is actually aiming at the same thing, taking out mucus. You're going to say isn't water better? Yes, in Agama we think water is better so we mention the other netis only as a title of information just because if you want to know that there are other netties such as the the sutra neti, the neti with the thread, but uh, we recommend in Agama that you do it with water. We, I personally have not noticed any additional gigantic effect from this. However, the rubbing of the thread behind your nostrils, behind the nose, in the, on the pharynx area, does stimulate some very mysterious points in your head, and that's why some mysterious effects are described, which go perhaps beyond Jala Neti. It says in 51 persevering practice, so now it says persevering, like it won't come in three weeks. Persevering practice of Neti Karman bestows the Kechari Siddhi, or as a variation of it, it perfects the process of Kechari Mudra. It's not said if it's the Kechari Siddhi or the Kechari Mudra. This is a very, very powerful statement. Kechari Mudra is that forbidden rare mudra which you can learn in the Kundalini process in which you cut the frenum of your tongue and elongate your tongue and swallow it back and can get it behind your uvula and touch some mysterious points inside the hollow of your head, behind the nostrils and so on. That's a pretty extreme gesture, it's a pretty extreme practice which even in Agama very few people do or have reached to the point where they can do. And uh, the Kechari Mudra is, Swami Shivananda calls it a branch of yoga. Like there is a form of yoga which consists of Kechari Mudra. You do Kechari Mudra and that's your yoga from Alpha to Omega. So some yogis consider this Kechari Mudra because of its extreme nature to be a very, very powerful practice. And uh, that's why when you say this helps you to do Kechari Mudra, like many people say, oh, wow, you know, so you should do it. If it bestows the Kechari Siddhi, that's even better, because the Kechari Siddhi means that you can move your consciousness. The movement of the consciousness, which is called Kechari Siddhi in India, is called by the Tibetan's pova, the projection of consciousness, and it means basically that while your body stays here, your consciousness can go anywhere, even in parallel universes, and witness things, and you can be in places instantaneously, and much more than that. And that's why... Uh, It is a huge statement in both ways. Of course, uh, many people would say that maybe it's just about Kechari Mudra. Maybe it's more modest. It destroys the disorders of the phlegm or kapha dosha. That's again a huge statement. It destroys the disorders of the phlegm. The most simple disorder of the phlegm is the common flu. How many times some of you have a flu every year? There are people who every year have once, twice or three times a flu or something. It says that neti destroys the disorders of the phlegm. So once you start feeling a sore throat and going into a flu, neti, 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 three times per day, even with hot water and so on, like you don't need to do it with a thread. But again, I want to say that this thread thing justifies something which comes. It says it destroys the disorders of the phlegm, improves the vision. What has that got to do with the eyes? Well, it's in the area. It stimulates some energy, some awareness, it's a reflex in this area somewhere, and this may have an effect, the boosting of the energy which goes to your eyeballs as well. And you might discover that you clean your nose, but your nose is related with the lacrimal glands and with a lot of other things, and you might notice that actually it does have an effect on vision, and produces clairvoyance. The word used in Garanda Samhita is without any doubt. It's called Divyadrishti. Drishti means the vision of the gods. You see what the gods see, divine vision. So therefore, it says that neti karma, the one with the thread, it can produce phenomena of clairvoyance. And many people say, you know what, maybe it would be worth it. You know, like the effort of doing a bit of neti karma in the morning, for six months or one year and then I might start seeing the colors of people's aura or something maybe it's worth it it's a damn little trick you know how did the yogis discover all these little tricks which push the human being to open the gates of perception this being one of them so this is neti in practice again here in Agama we don't do the neti with thread because I haven't noticed too much effects compared to the jala neti But you can think, if I do neti with water, won't that clarify my vision and my inner vision? Because basically what this guy says is that if you do neti and eliminate physical mucus from the area of your forehead and sinuses, somehow your mental vision becomes more clear. Your mind's eye gets opened. Well, that's a very important statement then everybody should do neti as much as possible because everybody is in need of mental clarity. How many people do not complain that they lack clarity of mind? You want clarity of mind? Neti is a typical example of what can clean your mind by cleaning the mucus in your head first of all. And then your mind discharges more mucus in the head and next morning you clean it again. And in this way you drain and drain and drain and drain until the mind finds itself relieved and lighter. And thus, the yogis have a very, very beautiful way of looking upon the body. Like the body and the energies, the physical body and the subtle bodies are interrelated. You do something to your physical body, and you hit an effect which is purely subtle or paranormal. Very often, yoga works like that. Then it jumps to the... Fourth category of Kriya, just one shloka. This is one of the very beloved ones in Agama. Many people do it. Here it's called Laukiki. Laukiki is just another name for the famous Nauli. Lauliki, Laukiki, Nauli, Niauli. There are various names used for it. Here we use the name Nauli in Agama. In Geranda Samhita it's called Laukiki. All these Lau, Nauli, Niauli. Lau kiki, lau leki, are just showing the wobbling of the belly. Those of you who have seen Na'ul, you know what I'm talking about. That the belly is almost like a very funny way of playing with it, and it's like waves on a river. Says the text. It says forcefully move the abdomen from side to side. It doesn't say how, in void retention or whatever. As simple as that, your guru will explain to you what this means. This destroys all diseases and increases the bodily fire. Nauli summed up to two lines. The effects of Nauli summed up to ten words. Nauli destroys all diseases, all diseases. What about Alzheimer's? Yes, all diseases, all diseases. They simply say all and increases the bodily fire. which which means increases your Manipura. See, Garanda doesn't say Nauli Kriya works on Manipura chakra. But it says it works on such a chakra which destroys all the diseases in the body and it increases your bodily fire. Guess, oh guess what this chakra is. Many people ask me, Swami, how do you guys know that Nauli works on Manipura? Because it is written between the lines here. But you need to know yoga to be able to read between the lines. Because in the moment when he says this, Nauli would not produce this effect if it would work on Zvadhisthana, or if it would work on Anahata, or if it would work on Muladhara, or if it would work on Sahasrara. Nauli can produce these two effects that it destroys all diseases and increases the bodily fire only by working on Manipura. So it's written, but it's written for the prose. It's written in code language. It's not written like pre-digested. Here it is for the lazy ones who can't use your mind. I'm telling you that it works on Manipura Chakra. No, it's written in code because they thought that if this text falls in the hands of an outsider, they shouldn't be able to learn yoga from the papers. Papers can accidentally be lost. You don't want the because in the old days, these papers were not published. These papers were manuscripts which were kept preciously by every guru, And it was a collection and the biggest honor which you had if the guru was allowing you to read or to copy the text. This is how these texts were transmitted. And that's why uh, (coughs) the secrecy was held in this way as well. They would have considered the loss of such a text terrible. That's all about Nauli, the fourth class of Kriyas. The fifth class of Kriyas is nothing else but Trataka. The whole edifice of Trataka, which is such an important edifice, is described in Garanda Samhita in just two shlokas. Because it speaks only about one Trataka. In Agama we teach five forms of Trataka. But in Garanda Samhita, Garanda knows about one and like one is good enough. There is this kriya called Trataka. It says, gaze steadily without winking. No question of blinking. It says gaze steadily. Without winking at any small object. So it doesn't mean a dot on the wall. It means like a pebble. Until tears begin to flow. So it's pushing it. Like you know, It's like it, if you feel comfortable, it means you haven't done enough trataka. Do more until tears start flowing. Push it. So gaze steadily without winking at any small objects until tears begin to flow. The enlightened call this trataka. 54 persevering practice of this technique again not three weeks of practice persevering practice of this technique gives victory in Shambhavi Mudra we teach Shambhavi Mudra in the first level and Trataka here starts being taught only in the third level in Agama when you get to know this then you see that if your Shambhavi Mudra is not good enough you can strengthen it by starting doing regularly Trataka People whose Shambhavi Mudra is very poor, we advise them to practice Trataka. Also, it destroys diseases of the eyes. We say this, that Trataka is the more subtle part of the yoga of the eyes. Yoga of the eyes has some physical exercises and has this powerful thing called Trataka into it. So indeed, Trataka is a healer of the eyes. And it induces clairvoyance. Again, the word divya drishti. Divya drishti, divine vision. Drishti, vision, divya of the gods, divine. So, it is said very clearly that by practicing trataka, one can get clairvoyance. Any one of you wants to see auras, the recipe is simple. Do trataka until you start seeing auras. It's as simple as that. Trataka can make you see auras. It doesn't take any more than that. Oh, if you also do neti and if you also do a few things you are going to accelerate the process obviously, but the practice otherwise is clear. And a little bit more so I finish with the chapter number one tonight. The, he moves to the sixth and last of the series, the last of the forms of Kriya and with this he will finish this 60 shloka long chapter on the Kriyas of Hatha Yoga. And the last one is called Kapalabhati. And he says the Kapalabhati is of three kinds, Vama Krama, Viut Krama, and Sit Krama. They destroy disorders of the Phlegm Kapha. So he has to say something about all of three. All three of them, before we start going into details, all of them are good for disorders of Kapha Dosha. If it's in the head, because it works very much in the head, it's going to clean a lot of kapha dosha. And then he starts describing them. Vama krama, two shlokas for it. Draw the wind through the left nostril. Actually, in, in Giranda Samhita, when they speak about the left nostril, they call it ida. And ida is not a nostril. ida is the name of a channel of energy. It's ida nadi. And that's why when they say, draw the air through ida nadi, they are very smart because they, everybody in yoga knows that when I say inhale, inhale through Ida Nadi, it means I have to inhale through the left nostril physically. But it calls my attention on the fact that I have to focus on the energy. That here the energy is entering in my Ida Nadi and in the left side of my body, of my Nadi channel, of my channels of energy. So draw the wind. And it says draw the wind, draw the vayu. It doesn't say draw the air. Draw the wind, but the word vayu is used to mean the physical wind and it is used also to mean prana vayu, apana vayu, the different subtle energies of the body. So on purpose he uses here a twilight language, he uses a double entendre so that you can understand whatever you want. If you don't know yoga you just take it to the face value and if you know yoga you understand that he means both the physical practice and the energy practice. Draw the wind through the left nostril, Ida, and expel it through the right, which he calls obviously Pingala, which is the name of the Nadi, not of the nostril. Then again, draw it through the right and expel it through the left. Until now, it, it means that he is talking about Nadi Shodana Pranayama. Inhale through the left, exhale through the right, inhale through the right, exhale through the left. Then in 57, he clarifies. The, pra- the description of this practice takes more than just one shloka. 57. After forcefully inhaling and exhaling, aha, so now he tells me that that thing which I spoke about has to be done forcefully. After forcefully inhaling and exhaling, one should not hold the breath, which means you have to do it non-stop. You inhale, you exhale, you exhale, you inhale, you don't stop, you don't hold the breath. So it's a continuous breathing and forceful. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. It goes non-stop. This practice destroys disorders of the phlegm, or kapha. He said that before, that all three of them destroy disorders of the flesh. He doesn't find any other inspiration than say it, it again. When you do this, here in Agama, when we teach Kapalabhati, we teach a more elaborate form of it. It's based on it, but in Agama, it's a little bit different because we don't use it alternatively like this. But otherwise, the principle is the same. The second of the forms of Kapalabhati, he calls it viewed Krama. And this is a real weird one. It says, draw water slowly through each nostril and then expel it through the mouth. This is called Vyut krama and prevents accumulation and diseases of the phlegm or kapha. Well, that's what we call jalaneti. Jalaneti is drawing water through the nostrils and expelling it. And therefore, uh, here we have again, one of those famous coincidences or misunderstandings mixed up mixing-ups of names that here uh, he calls it viewed krama, but normally we would call it jala neti, neti done with water. And sit krama is a very mysterious practice, which is very seldom done and much more difficult because it's basically going with water the other way around. I want to call your attention that it starts with the word sit the word sit is very famous in yoga for a variety of reasons. Some of them which I will not be able to touch in this satsang level commentary. But the word sit is meaning a sound which you produce with your mouth. Like sit karin pranayama. The pranayama in which you make the word sit. And what does it mean? It means that when you inhale you make... And it is very much like the noise which somebody does when they have pain or when they have pleasure. Like somebody tickles you or you have pleasure and you go. This sound of pleasure, the yogis have codified it as the syllable sit, S-I-T. And that's why whenever it is mentioned, it brings a lot of references from the yogic and tantric tradition. And it says... Suck water through the mouth with a hissing sound, and that's the sound, sit. Like it says when you suck the water, you have to suck it, like you are sucking a hot fluid, like people drinking a hot soup and it's too hot, and you have to suck it, slurping it in a way, making a hissing sound. This hissing sound is sit automatically, and then expel it through the nose. Sometimes it does happen to you that when you drink water, if you suddenly laugh or do something, water is bursting in your nose and then you have to blow it and you feel really embarrassed and what the heck was that? I will be more careful next time. So we know that it's possible for water from the mouth to be pushed back in some way and that's so it gushes up the nose. When you do jala neti, you take it in the nose and out the mouth. When you do it, this sit krama, you are taking it in the mouth and you are trying it to push it in the nose, which for many people it's difficult in the beginning. By this practice, guess oh guess, one becomes like the god of love or Kama Deva. Again, there is something here to do with this sit within Kama Sutra is classified as a sound of pleasure. Kama Sutra says that if you penetrate your woman and your woman does Then it's good. You should be happy. You are having a green light. Like the woman feels pleasure when she produces such sounds. So it's one of the typical landmark sounds of pleasure in Kama Sutra. And it's a funny association that here you do some washing in area of your head. What has that got to do with Kama Deva? What besides cultivating an exceptional cleanliness of your body. Which is anyway very welcome. Very good. So here... It's not explained and the list becomes flabbergasting in the next shloka, 60, which is the last of this chapter. It says, old age never comes to him. Then maybe it's worth making the effort to spit some water through your nose. Old age never comes to him and decrepitude does not afflict him. It's a very weird formulation even in Sanskrit. So many authors translate it in so many different ways decrepitude, decrepitude is more used in French than in English really, it's a word which means like the decay of the tissues, looking haggard, falling apart, decrepit, when you say this person is so decrepit, like when somebody has been drinking too much for the last 10 years and sleeping in ditches and in mud like a pig and you look at them and say this person is so decrepit because they have taken drugs or whatever, so decrepitude means decay, it means you are falling apart. And it says, old age never comes to him and decrepitude does not afflict him. These are very big statements. We don't know how much percent of it we can ascribe to the normal lifestyle. Like if you eat chips with monosodium glutamate to them, will this statement be still valid? If you kill yourself with MSG, then is it still valid that if you do sit krama, it won't afflict you? Because this statement was valid a thousand years ago for people living on clean water, in clean air, without stress, without chemicals in the food, without genetically modified food, without chemicals, without pesticides, without fertilizers, without a million of things which happen now. And that's why, of course, all these things need to be taken with a pinch of salt, especially in the modern times. So he says this Old age never comes to him. We can say at least it's delayed considerably. And decrepitude does not afflict him. At least the decay will be slowed down to a visible level. The body is brought under control. I think here he means most commentaries. And again, what I have learned about it, it says that because of this, that you can control the muscles in the throat to push the water up, which is a pretty unnatural move inside your throat and becomes healthy and flexible. Several authors mention this translation that it's about the, the body is soft, which is considered by the yogis to be an advantage. Like a stiff body is an impure body. A flexible, soft, youthful body is healthy and full of vitality. Disorders of the phlegm or kapha are eliminated. Again, he mentions kapha, although he mentioned it two times, three times already. And it was mentioned for the whole category. Pretty big statements for sitkrama, Just sucking water through the mouth. Slurping it. And then trying to push it out of your nose. And it ends with a colophon which has no number. There is just a final shloka like a statement. Which says thus ends the first lesson of the Geranda Samhita. In the dialogue between Geranda and Chanda. Called Satkarma Sadhana of Ghatta Yoga. So basically... In the end, they always draw a beautiful conclusion to tell you what this was and where you stand. I have done some translation about the asanas, but I'm not going to start tonight. It's too late already. Next time when we do a satsang, next week if everything goes right, I'm going to start talking about the vision of Garanda, about a totally different category of practices, this time the famous asanas. Then you are going again to see A huge difference between what a yogi in the 18th century said about hatha yoga and what is being done today in the so-called hatha yoga. How the emphasis and the accent has changed completely from what were their interests 200 years ago and what is today being taught about these things. So enough with this for today. We have finished the first chapter. Thank you all for joining the satsang of tonight. Namaste to all of you and see you in the next satsangs where we'll continue with the beautiful, informative text of Gyaranda. With this, we have finished for tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com downloads.